Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. I'm on a journey to get better in all areas of life, from wellness and mental health to career and relationships and so much more. I know getting better isn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier when you can do it together. Welcome to Better Together with me, Maria Menunos. Dr. Nicola Perra, a.k.a. the holistic psychologist, has built a strong community of millions who come to her for advice from everything from codependency to attachment and relationships to healing childhood trauma. She is full of answers and her whole thing is giving you the tools so you can heal yourself. She wants to make you conscious so you can create a new version of you, but she wants to arm you with those tools so you can do it. You don't have to go to someone else. You have the power within you. So today we talked to Dr. Nicole about how your childhood trauma is affecting your relationships, not only with others, but also of course yourself. So Listen up, take those notes, and please, if this episode speaks to you, share it with a friend, share it with a family member. It means the world to us, Heal Squad. We love you all so much. Happy Throwback Thursday. Have a great weekend and enjoy. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Better Together. When you know better, you get better. That's what we do here every single day. Our quote of the day comes from our guest, Trauma creates the fundamental belief that we must betray who we are in order to survive. Oh, I know. Oh my God. I know. Someone just kicked me in the chest. (laughs) Trauma creates the fundamental belief that we must betray who we are in order to survive. And she gave me another one, this little Kelsey. (laughs) I got it. Oh, man. We spend 95% of our lives distracted by our own thoughts. People aren't judging you. They're too busy judging themselves. How crazy. Damn. Dr. Nicole LaPera with the mic drops today. Her Instagram is my favorite Instagram. Maybe period, end of story. I agree. I really don't know how she keeps up with the content. Like, how many things can you think of to posts that are going to knock our socks off. And she really does every post. She like every time my socks are gone. (laughs) Every (laughs) single time. What an old reference. (laughs) I liked it. Am I like super old right now? No. They knocked my socks off my block. (laughs) (laughs) Her Instagram knocked my socks off. I've been spending too much time with the geezer. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, let's get to 
our interview, Heal Squad, you guys have heard Dr. Nicola Para on the show before. We interviewed her while we were in Connecticut, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so she is otherwise known as the holistic psychologist. She's one of the foremost online voices in emotional wellness. She has over 4.5 million followers uh, on Instagram, and uh, she has traditional training from Cornell University. She believes that mental wellness is for everyone. Her views on mental and physical struggles from a whole person perspective and works to identify the underlying physical and emotional causes of pain. Wow. Very few people do that. Right. (laughs) Uh, She understands that balance is an integral part of wellness. She empowers individuals to heal themselves. What do we talk about every day, everybody? Mm -hmm. Supporting them on their wellness journeys. She is the creator of the online movement Self Healers. Heal Squad, are you listening? Self-healers, where people from around the world are joining together in community to take healing into their own hands. Dr. Nicola Perra, so glad to have you back on the show. So honored to be here, Maria. And I have to say, Heal Squad, I think I'm adopting that one. Love it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we uh, we affectionately call our, our listeners. They affectionately call themselves the Heal Squad because that's what we believe in too. Love it. I think that we are disempowered in the medical community to, you know, to try to even attempt those things. Like we need to really know that we have the power to heal ourselves. Um, doesn't mean that we can't be collaborative or seek traditional help. Absolutely. But you know yourself better than anyone. You're going to be much more detailed than they ever could be because they don't have the time to be that detailed when they see, you know, 100 patients in a day. So um, self-healing is really, really important. um, And especially when you're doing it with a safe practitioner that's guiding you through. So um, I'd love to know more about self-healers. Yeah, absolutely. And I I couldn't agree more. Um, For so many of us, we've what what I call outsourced. Mm -hmm. A lot of us, even from very early on in our conditioning, have learned that other people have the answers. You know, of course, when we're in childhood, it's namely our parents or people older than us. And very quickly, that becomes maybe our friend group and then experts in any area. And it's not to say, to speak to your point, that other people can't give us information. other people can't give us a different perspective, not being us. We are all, all subjective to ourselves. So having other people on our journey is definitely part of the story, though we do know ourselves the best. And a lot of us do outsource our inner knowing when it is in opposition to what we're hearing from someone else. We're looking to take the path that maybe worked for someone else and not wondering why it doesn't work for us. And then there's, of course, the other reality, which is we're the ones waking up with ourselves day in and day out. And the way I think of healing is healing is a journey. The habits that we're living aren't, aren't, are creating the experiences we're having, whether it's relationship issues, whether it's actual symptoms of anxiety, a lot of them are based in our environment or the choices we're making. I think a lot about epigenetics, that the, the reality that we do have choice, right? We have genetics and then we have choices we make day in and day out. So back to what I was saying, we're the one making those choices. So to create change, yes, going to an appointment for an hour a week for those of us have the, the privilege to do that is incredibly valuable. But my question always went back to, okay, well, what about all of the other hours in those weeks? What are the choices that these humans are making and how empowering are those choices? And can we empower different choices to create change? 
I love that. So in the self healers, um, movement, are you guiding everyone and, and kind of teaching them how to, how to do this? So, I mean, we think, I think about the movement in, in two separate ways. And, and the first of it is the Instagram account. I can't believe that it's been, I think three years now, I, 2018 uh, is when I first put that account up. And my intention in doing that was twofold, was to begin to talk about this new model of wellness that I was having a lot of success with in my own practice. Um, after coming to realize all of the limitations of traditional therapy, I began to work holistically using many of the tools that I began to talk about online with individual clients and saw such success, myself included. So for me, going to the free space that was Instagram, that could be, you know, access the population now outside of where I was living in Philadelphia, I could begin to talk about these tools to others around the world, that was really attractive to me because again, it equalized access. Everyone or anyone who has a phone can access the app of Instagram. So for me, that was the way I could begin to share tools with people who might not have access to some of this way of thinking. The second piece of um, my intention was to connect with other people who were living the same journey because I came to realize how important relationships were, how important it was to have support and not just any relationships. All of us are in relationships of some kind, but to have relationships where we can be ourselves, where mm -hmm. we can begin to talk about some of these deeper truths and the journey that we're on in an authentic way. And I wasn't seeing that in the current relationships I was having. So again, I went online to find it. So for me, you know, the movement begins there, begins each and every day where you can sign on to an account and you can begin to hear a new model of wellness. And something I really do try to do in, in not only just talking about concepts, I really try to offer practical tools so that someone can walk away from seeing a meme of mine and actually have maybe some awareness of Hmm, why am I struggling the way that I am? That awareness for some of us is so healing because mm -hmm. a lot of us have felt broken as we can't change, we begin to, you know, believe that something is wrong with us. So the awareness is an, a big, big piece, but so is the practical tool. What new choice, like I was saying earlier, can I begin to make each and every day? So I am committed three years later to still showing up. I of course translated that into now a membership where each and every month we can dive a little deeper. So for me, it's the movement of healing in a community where we can talk about things authentically and begin to empower ourselves to create choice or change. I love it. We're going to get into relationships, but before we <laughs> do, you mentioned Instagram and I am, first of all, you're my favorite Instagram account. I've told you this before, but you just drop bombs and I just don't understand how one human can drop so many bombs. Like how do you collect, how do you even, I feel like I would have run out by now this many years in of bombs. Like it's not like any post just kind of, Oh, that was good. They're bombs. They're just truth bombs. They just connect. How do you do it? Hey, Hill Squad and Better Together fam. It's been a tough year, but we hear from so many of you just how much our content is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. Our team works so hard to deliver this life-changing content, and a lot of you guys ask, how can I have a bigger role in our Heal Squad community, or how can I do my part to help Better Together continue to uplift even more people? First of all, thank you for that sentiment, and we're so grateful for this community. If you could help us by giving us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts, that's amazing 
amazing. Second, you could join the Better Together with Maria Menounos Instagram page. Third, you could share the show with a friend in need. And finally, for as little as $10 a month, please join our Patreon to get monthly live heal events with world-class healers, ad-free episodes of our show, and even weekly bonus episodes exclusive to Patreon. Getting better isn't easy, but it is a whole lot better when we can do it together. We love and appreciate and are so grateful for all of you. I appreciate, well, I appreciate you, you saying that I'm a favorite. <laughs> I also appreciate though you even calling it a bomb because something I struggled with for a very long time was speaking my truth. I am the person who, if I had any inclination that what I had to say might upset whoever it was listening, not just even people I love deeply, even people I don't even know, I wouldn't say it. So I had that tendency ingrained from childhood. Mm -hmm. Again, there were very real reasons for that, but I filtered myself. And I, of course, did so in my practice for a very long time until I came to the realization that there was value in this truth. And I, I appreciate your acknowledgement because it, it wasn't easy. And my partner, Lolly, from the very beginning, who was the person who offered me, you know, online as a great venue, a great avenue to begin to talk about some of these truths, really helped push me to say what I really meant and not to water the, my truth down as I once did. So thank you for acknowledging that. And of course, I've, I've worked to do so. And I'm sharing that background because it isn't always easy whether we're talking about sharing our truths or dropping knowledge or sharing, you know, wisdom we've gained in our journey, it is a hurdle. A lot of us have to, to jump over to even be able to first acknowledge the truth within ourselves, because that's where it begins, right? I have to feel confident in what I'm saying. And then I have to feel confident enough to say it to others who can then do whatever they will with it, which brings me to right? Once you put something out there, then it's available to everyone and their subjective filters and what they think you said and the reaction that they very well might have yes. to what you said. Yes. And then it's the whole conversation, right? Of how do I navigate sharing my truth um, with the reality that there is a lot of misunderstanding and that online is one of those places. Um, one of the ways that's kept me coming back is my what I share, whether I'm in on Instagram, whether I'm in the circle, my membership, much of it is either things I've gone through or things I'm going through. Because just like everyone, I'm still on my healing journey. So to answer your question about how do you kind of come up with it? Of course, there was a part of me that was like, oh my gosh, I'm going on Instagram. I'm doing this every day. Or, oh my gosh, I'm opening up a membership. That means until the forever future, I have to do something every month. There can't be enough content in the world, yeah. right? There can't be enough topics in the world. But again, as a learner, as someone who's still on my journey, it turns out there are because <laughs> I'm an evolving creature and I find new things, right? I get hung up at different aspects. Like I discover new, deeper layers. And then that just fuels me to teach that to the world. I know. I feel the same way. Like I get nervous about that too, but then we never, we go every day here. We never run out of topics because I'm so curious and I always want to learn and grow. Um, but you know, the accuracy of your posts, um, you kind of just nail us because we all see ourselves in it, but it is really scary. Um, and that's where I think we can shift into kind of relationships because, when you are vulnerable, that's when you can be judged. That's when you can be hurt. And I think for a lot of us who have been very hurt along the way, we just kind of go into our turtle shells and be like, no more, no mas, 
Thank you. I'll just be in here. Leave me alone. Nobody hurt me. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'll be very surface. Let's just keep it like this. And so, but the truth is anyone who gets out of the turtle shell and is honest is going to have the most success in their life. And I don't mean like career success, financial success. That's like a byproduct. I mean, success as a human where people are going to really rally around you because they're rallying because they can't do it yet. And you have. Yes. What a, what a beautiful, uh, you know, kind of piece that you can offer someone the path forward or the next step in, in someone's journey. And I think that a lot of us, you know, we, we do look for that inspiration because there is part of us that doesn't believe that it's there or maybe doesn't know how to take that step forward. And then of course there's the part of us, right. That doesn't actually believe that we can do that. Um, and so for me, that was very much a part of my journey. As I began to read about all of these ways that we can create health or wellness or healing in our life, I had a very deep rooted belief based again in, in past hurt that I've experienced that that's great. That's really great that all of these people have had so much success. This won't work for me. So I think it's that kind of that path forward, that next stepping stone can be empowering for some people and also can be really threatening. Here's that word again, right? Going back into my turtle shell for other people, because I might be the person that hears of someone's success or journey into alignment, whatever you want to call it. And I might be like, I once was, oh, good for them, not available for me. And then the reaction of course, is much more of retreat into my turtle shell, which sometimes it does look like retreat into my turtle shell. Oh, I don't like, this is nothing I'm interested in. I withdraw from the information or I might react outwardly. I might contend it. I might argue it, right? A lot of that comes from hurt. So let's talk about hurt. Hurt in childhood, in my opinion, impacts us well into adulthood. So many of us are carrying hurt. And the hurt I'm talking about isn't just hurt at the hands of abuse, abuse of in the terms of the big T trauma, I think a lot of listeners might've heard that concept, essentially what that means, right? Are these big events in our life. This is when we think of sexual abuse, physical abuse, extreme emotional neglect, right? The big things that could be really cataclysmic and shake our world. For a very long time, we knew, right? That that had impact. Into the nineties, we discovered that, yes, we carry even the impact of that, that could have happened decades earlier in childhood, into our adulthood. We carry it in our physical bodies. We might have physical symptoms, medical illnesses, and we carry it in our emotional worlds, our inability to cope with emotions, maybe even symptoms of different diagnoses. However, other types of hurt, in my opinion, were left out. And a lot of the hurt that was left out is more relational hurt, hurt around our emotions, hurt where we maybe once self-expressed in one way. I shared sadness with my mother who my sadness overwhelmed my mother. So she withdrew. I become shameful before I know it. I start to shield even my, myself from that sadness. And when we see this patterning, we see it in our relationships and we carry the hurt. It looks like adaptations. It looks like masks we wear. It looks like picking a certain type of partner, even though it always ends up the same consequences or the same type of relationship that we've determined doesn't work for us. We carry the hurt. We carry it in our bodies. We carry it in our minds and it translates into our relationships. Yeah. And then those are patterns. 
And the patterns just keep on coming until we dig in and do the work. Yes, absolutely. And and the byproduct of those patterns is like I was saying earlier, some of us really do begin to indulge this idea that, well, there must be some reason why I keep walking down the same road. I don't quote unquote know better, even though I've lived the consequences, which might be dire for some of us. I feel I, this is just strengthening that belief I was talking about earlier. Well, it must be because I'm broken. It must be because I don't, I don't actually deserve this other type of relationship. And then some of us might even have the gift of very well-meaning loved ones around us who are screaming and yelling at these red flags that they're seeing, right? They're almost playing the tape out of our relationships. Like, oh girl, don't go down that path again. And yet we still, we can't, we can't because in those patterns is the familiar. We as human creatures love the familiar. Mm -hmm. It's where we seek safety. If I can predict what's coming next, I inherently feel safer than if I have no idea, even if what's coming next might have negative consequences. So before we know it, we are very patterned and we seek the familiar, even if again, it carries consequences that don't serve us. That's so funny because security, like fear like I've, I've never felt safe in my whole life. I did a session with them. Do you know Peter Crone? Yes. So he like makes you fill out this form and like, he's like, okay, so it's very clear, you know, safety and fear, like, you know, fear for your safety. That's always been your biggest thing. And, and so, um, so that he kind of made me aware of it. And then in the last few years, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid for me, but I'm afraid I see my neighbor's gate open. I'm like, oh my God, their gates open. What if the dog gets out? What if someone enters the property and burglarizes them? I'm always worried about everybody's safety. And what's funny is like, I have always had a really strong intuition. Some would call it psychic abilities. Um, and I had a psychic recently was like, you are super psychic. I'm just going to tell you right now, you are super psychic. And my husband diagnosed me and he goes, Maria, he's like, you had to become psychic because that was your only relief. Like you had to be able to predict what was coming to try to protect yourself from, from more coming at you. Just so funny, I hear that when you say what you just said. When you're on the go 24-7 like me, guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me. From working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials, it's been my go-to for so many years. And having everything in one place is such a time saver for me. With being a first-time mom, for a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between, but it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're going to love it. Yes. I mean, and what you're describing is the process that a lot of us go through in childhood when we're dependent. The world is a big, scary place. We can't meet our needs on our own. Our life wouldn't continue if someone didn't show up for us. That state of dependency in and of itself is terrifying for an infant. 
right? And then of course, depending on how consistently or not, how equipped or not, the humans showing up for us were, reminding ourselves that they too are humans, they too were taught by other humans and might be limited in their own skills, right? It's a scary place and we deal with big feelings a lot. And when we don't have someone who's attuned, who can show up when we're in a state of distress, what is distress as an infant? When we're crying, when we're crying, there's usually a need. Um, we're hungry. We need to be changed. We're tired, right? A need. Our, our nervous system, what's happening in that moment, it becomes stressed. It actually activates into our sympathetic or fight or flight nervous system, signaling to our body that it's unsafe. We're unsafe when we have an unmet need. And then, of course, hypothetically, if someone comes and helps tend to our need, we begin to learn safety. I can, I can have a need. My body can need nutrients. My body can be tired. I can even have an emotion. I can be upset or frustrated and someone comes and helps me. I begin to develop trust. I develop security that I can handle the world around me. And when I don't, when I feel unsafe, when I don't have that consistency in any area, this is where, again, we enter things more than having our physical needs met. I put up a post today about emotional neglect. When we don't have someone helping us tend to our needs, allowing us to express sadness, express anger, and allowing us in the space or modeling for us how to regulate it, we continue to be in that activated nervous system state, and we actually never feel safe in the body. So what happens, a lot of us do very much like you do, it becomes a hypervigilance where mm -hmm. the best safety we can create for mm -hmm. ourselves is by scanning the world around us and anticipating what's coming next. Because if I can predict something very unsafe is coming next, I can set myself up to cope with it. And a lot of us carry that body dysregulation. Our nervous system actually never unshifts or kind of downshifts from that stress state into adulthood. We continue to be hypervigilant of our environments, always scanning for threats. And even this plays out in our relationships where we're constantly monitoring maybe the needs of someone else. If I can anticipate what my partner needs in this moment, right, I might be able to avoid a blowout or conflict or something that might make me uncomfortable. And again, that's a perfect, thank you for sharing that, example of that adaptation I was talking. The early environment, even those of us who maybe were being fed and we did have the security of a roof over our head, if we didn't feel safe around our emotions, we do adapt in some way. And a lot of us never grow out of it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm thinking of so many intense moments right now. Um, and I'm sure everybody else listening is too. Um, let's talk a little bit about trauma bonds. I know my husband and I have one. Yes. <laughs> I know that Lolly and I um, started out in one myself. Because so you what can is start out bond? in one and then get out yes. of it? Yes, okay. absolutely. A trauma bond, um, in, in, in my definition, is our kind of familiar, let's go back to that word because it applies here, our for the relationship pattern that we're most familiar with, right? The way that we show up, the needs we express, how are we most used to feeling our relationships, navigating our relationships, being in relationship? And where does that form? In those earliest relationships, when it's our parents, our caregivers, or whoever was, you know, in charge of meeting those needs that I was just describing earlier, because our brains, right, are part of the picture here, we begin to create neural networks, right, of familiarity, even within our relationships. We learn the caregiver that's going to show up to beat our need. We learn how to 
ensure that that need gets met as consistently as possible. So we become the child who, if mom can't tolerate my sadness, I show less of it because I need mom because mom meets other needs for me. And I am most safe when I don't show sadness to mom. So I then modify myself. Now, this pattern that began usually in our caregiving or parent relationships becomes the model that we begin to explore with our peers, right? So if we become in childhood, as some of us are, the, the child that's attuned to mom, like I was describing, and doesn't try right to make mom angry, chances are in our relationships, we adopt that same role, right? The caregiver, I'm gonna use you as an example, the person always maybe anticipating the needs of the partner or the friend so that you can, right, continue to meet those needs because that's what you are familiar with. So this very widened definition allows us to understand that a lot of us are in patterns of relationships that are familiar, that aren't serving us. And because we're driven to that familiar, that's why we ignore the red flags. We ignore the well-meaning friends because that's almost become our comfort zone. So that's what I call a trauma bond. And yes, we can evolve out of that. What is important is the awareness, understanding what are the patterns that I'm creating in my relationship or participating in? Am I acknowledging my own needs or am I squashing or suppressing some of them because that's what I did in childhood? Am I able to explore my emotions and express them to the relationships around me or am I suppressing them or repressing them like I did in childhood? So as soon as we become aware of what we are doing, how we are participating in our relationships, then we can, like I was saying earlier, make space to begin to make new choices because we are a participant in those relationships. Even the ones that aren't working, we need to begin to do things differently to actually create change in them. And we can, once we become conscious of what it is that isn't working. Mm, yeah. I work with um, a, a somatic expression healer and he always talks about like new patterns, new behaviors, new choices. And so it's ingrained in me now every day to really try to approach things differently. I'll be like, okay, well, in this scenario, normally I would handle it like this. And I think if I was insane, I would continue on that path because I keep getting the same results. Let me apply something new and then I apply that new thing and then I'm like you know, my poodle, I cock my head to the left. I'm like, oh, well, that was different. Okay. All right. That was a little better. I like that. <laughs> but you well, have to be where... conscious of what wasn't working or what pattern you had been consistently in to say, okay, I'm going to try something different. What I was going to offer, and I'm, I apologize for intruding in there, but the thing is, is we, you might not even get to that assessment of, oh, that worked or, oh, I feel better or, oh, that feels good. Because actually what happens more often than not first is we feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. with the newness. And the reason why I offered the neural networks and the fact that our brain is involved is because our brain is involved. And that matters a lot because our bodies become now familiar with maybe it's the person who's in that fight or flight, always scanning the room. That's become the familiar for our body. So like me, right, as a stressed out human, I've, I've only known stress since, since childhood, yet if you would have heard me speak, I would say, I'm a hippie at heart, peace, peace and love. All I want to do is chill out, right? I don't want to be stressed. I want peace. However, to my body that was used to cortisol, that was used to being in fight or flight, that moment of peace when no one else around me to create stress wasn't peaceful, it was un 
comfortable. So a lot of us can't create change because the second we kind of walk into discomfort, the discomfort of whatever the new thing is, we take that to mean that, oh, maybe we shouldn't be going in this direction, right? Maybe this is a marker that this isn't meant for us. So I talk a lot about, I call it resistance. And I urge us all to anticipate that because the new thing doesn't often feel good immediately. Over time, it will, right? Sometimes we can't even feel the, the repercussions of the new choice yet because we just feel uncomfortable because it's new. Yeah. So here's the thing. You probably... Well, not probably. You are the hippie. It's just it got layered on with all of these different traumas and life experiences. Mm -hmm. Like I remember going to my first Tony Robbins seminar and afterwards, all I could say was I felt like a layer of dust and dirt just got cleaned off the windshield. Like he windexed me and I was like, whoa, I think I see again. (laughs) And so I think what happens is there's who we are when we come in and then all of that stuff just gets layered on. And if you're not washing that windshield often, or at least trying, it's just going to pile on and then it's going to get really thick and really hard. And you're not going to ever, you're going to need real powerful chemicals to clean it. And that's generally what happens to all of us. We get to a place where we need a real powerful chemical like you to come in and like start wiping it out, but it's going to take a while, which is why you have to go through lots of sessions and lots of time. Um, to get it all fixed, but you are that hippie. It's just returning to that hippie. Like you said, when you first got into this, this, um, world and outside of the traditional kind of therapy world, you had to unlearn and unparent and kind of go backwards. And that was what I realized after I had brain surgery. I'm like, I think I need to re-raise myself because there are certain things that I see more clearly now when you have like a situation like a brain tumor and you have brain surgery, lots of things go into perspective. I'm like, I need to re-raise myself. I need to reevaluate and I need to redefine kind of success for me moving forward and how I'm going to approach stuff because this is not serving me anymore. This is craziness. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's frizzy Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. What do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. 
I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. I often think of kind of similar to the, the dirty windshield analogy, the onion, right? We all have that space in us. Intuition, you used that word earlier, that inner knowing, that mm-hmm. guidance, right? That self-expression. So my inner hippie, that exists to anyone listening within each of you, I assure you. Chances are though, your onion layers are so thick that one of two things have happened. You can't, or it's uncomfortable to access that. You can't hear that knowing. You don't know what your authentic self-expression is in any given moment, or you might hear it. However, you don't trust it. So you become that person who maybe filters it. Oh, this is what I want to say or do right now, but how will that affect that person? Or this is what I feel is right for me, but my doctor didn't say that. My doctor actually said the other thing, right? So now I don't listen to that inner knowing. So again, that part and that space in each of us is there. Healing is a journey of unpeeling, of undoing and of reaccessing that that space within us. And for a lot of us, that means, right? Change, like making the choices that will allow our bodies to shift so that we can create that space to know ourselves. Because a lot of us, if you're in that hypervigilant body, I can go ahead and imagine that listeners who are anxious, if you identify as an anxious human, if you have panic attacks, if you're always nervous, I would go as far to say you probably were like I once was. The idea of sitting and listening to an inner self or an inner knowing is probably the most uncomfortable thing in the world, right? Because our bodies now won't allow us to stop, don't feel safe enough to stop, to actually begin to hear what I might know and want to express. And then I might not feel safe enough to do so. So here's where all of these kind of concepts tie together. And again, if bringing it back to relationships, a lot of times these patterns are playing out in our relationships, especially when they're romantic, because that's for many of us where the deepest feelings are. Yeah. Is it, by the way, side note, just for a little giggle, since we're talking about so much heavy stuff, um, is the onion analogy, because as you peel the onion, you're crying because it's such an emotional no, but that's journey. <laughs> but that's what I was thinking the whole time. Every time I'd peel the onion, I cry harder, which is, the, you know, definitely what happens as you're peeling your, you know, hypothetical onion. Well, you're bringing up a point. A lot of us don't allow ourselves to drop into that space because it is uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? In childhood, when I didn't have someone to help me navigate big feelings, I dissociated or I disconnected. I just, my body decided that that's too much. It's unsafe. I went away as I call it on my spaceship, never to look back again for decades. I didn't look at these patterns. I didn't look at how I was feeling. I didn't have access to it because I was so far apart. And as I began to realize, right, that I needed to look at some of these things, out came the discomfort now of decades, enough for you to want to go back 
in that turtle shell. So I love that kind of addition of the onion analogy being it's painful. Healing is a painful journey, understanding, right. Our habits and patterns, whether or not you know where they came from, you don't necessarily have to, because you can start right here, right now. Oftentimes it brings pain with it. Yeah. No pain, no gain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think in, in, relationships, right? Like I see so many friends who have a hard time in relationships um, that maybe aren't even aware that these things are patterns and are are happening. How do you advise people who haven't found their partner, really desperate to find that partner to to kind of look a little deeper and, and what kind of work would you suggest they do? And because like I said, I'm surrounded by single friends who, and you know, everyone wants to blame Los Angeles, but wherever someone is, they want to blame their city because it's so much easier to be like, Oh my God, all the guys here are this or all the guys here are that. Um, but the truth is, is there's something that's not working and, um, and they're all great people. And I just, I get so sad because I just see the same patterns. Like you said, the well-meaning friends who are like, hey. (laughs) So this is where I give, I think, the more non-traditional sounding relationship type advice. Because I think traditionally a lot of us maybe are, are taught or we think the answer is in something external. Right. I'm picking the wrong person. If I just understand the attributes to pick, you know, I could find the relationship I want. Maybe if I put myself in different environments, whatever it is, something outside of me, um, a lot of, or, or if you're in a partnership, asking the partner to change something aspect of them so I can experience them and the relationship differently. My belief on relationship as my belief in all things healing is change actually begins with me. So for those of us who don't yet have partners, you don't actually need to be worrying about the attributes that will work for you versus won't. The goal would be to focus on how do you show up in the relationships you do have? How is it when you relate to your family or your friends? How are you in a relationship? And again, what are you bringing possibly from your past that isn't serving you? And how can you can be create change in yourself so that you can meet your own needs? Because what a lot of us are doing when we look to pick the right partner, we have this idea that if only someone showed up differently, they'd meet my need the way I need it to be met. And the underlying belief in that is I need people to meet my needs and maybe even in a particular way. And I believe that when we have the most authentic and deepest and fulfilling relationships is when we show up meeting our own needs. Doesn't mean that we don't get support. Doesn't mean that we don't rely on our relationships. Of course we do, though I know how to take care of myself, how to create safety in my body. And I can be empowered to understand the role I'm playing in that relationship. And all of that, I can walk that journey of on my own. So a great question to ask outside of, well, how am I in relationships is how, how aware of my own needs am I, right? Can I care for this body? Am I in a dysregulated body? Can I begin to create change in myself so that when I walk into a relationship and become activated, I can do something differently. What's a dysregulated body? A dysregulated body is is when our our physiology, our nervous system in particular, is usually in a a state of activation. 
when I talk about the nervous system, when I talk about the body in general, I, I really simplify it. So for any science people out there, I'm not going to be saying, right, the big, the big names of things are really going to simplify for understanding. We have two main states, three of nervous system activation. We fight or flight is one of them. The official name is the sympathetic response. That's when our body feels activated, when there's a stress, when I feel threatened and I'm ready to fight, to fight it, to fight or to run away from it to say, oh, I can't fight this and I need to leave. I'm going to activate myself to create safety so that once the threat has been met, right, I've either fought it and stopped the threat or I've left the scenario of the threat, then my body can downshift into another state of nervous system activation, which is called the parasympathetic or rest and digest. That ideally is the state that most of us humans should be spending most of our time in. And what that feels like is calm, peaceful. My body feels rested. All of my systems, my digestion, my sleep is all humming along, right? I'm able to get sleep. I feel rested when I wake up. I don't have digestive issues as I know a lot of us do, right? That's our ideal state. When we're not in that, we might be in fight or flight. Again, our heart rate might always be um, elevated. I might always feel tense. I might be like you described, always scanning my environment. Maybe I'm always running from things to keep myself safe. And then the third one that I want to talk about is shutdown. When I become so completely overwhelmed and I become dissociated, like I talked about, when my body is actually shut down because it became so overwhelmed. And this looks like I feel numb. Feelings, what feelings? I barely even feel my body. This was me at one point. If I was asked, like, how does your body feel? My only word I could have given was tense because that's all it really ever felt. What about emotionally? How do you feel? I didn't really know how I felt because I was so, so disconnected. So it looks like feeling numb, having no energy, feeling totally lifeless, almost flatlined. That's a different state of nervous activation. It's called shutdown. And again, a lot of this, if you're listening, sounds like the symptoms, sounds like what we're calling anxiety, sounds like what we're calling depression, right? It's coming out in our relationships. And again, it originates in our bodies. Wow. That's a lot. Um, if we are in a relationship that isn't serving us, how do we shift out of that into more like authentic bonds? As a first time mom of the baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. <laughs> you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, they keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. Yeah. So I understanding, right? How and, and where it's not serving you. And that means getting attuned to yourself. 
right? What needs are going unmet? What aren't you feeling safe to express? What's happening now, right? And again, we all have different degrees of what's happening in our relationships that create a lack of safety. And then of course, we have to have a, an awareness of, of boundaries, of limits, right? If we are continuing to walk into a relationship that violates us or where there's violating behaviors in any way, of course, then the best decision we can make for ourselves to create safety is to put up a boundary, to take space or distance or to end that relationship. And then of course, there's all of the other spectrum of ways relationships might not be serving my authentic self-expression. Once we understand what's, what's happening, what needs aren't being met that might be there, then we can begin to learn how to safely express those needs. And for a lot of us, that begins with ourself first, because for a lot of us, we're not able to even, like I was sharing, identify or acknowledge our needs ourselves. We might then not have any idea where to start. We might not know what to do with these feelings. And I'll be the first to admit, I went to school for many years to become a doctor of, if you will, feelings, right? I knew how to talk the game, but like I shared with you, no idea how to tend to my own. Felt like I dove into the deep end and, and might as well have drowned. I didn't actually know. And I'm sharing that because I think a lot of us as adults, we feel shameful if we don't know. We feel like, oh, I can't, I can't say I don't know, right? And I definitely then don't know how to start to find out. So I just won't go there. Um, so again, I share that a lot of our journey then becomes exploring the ways to meet those needs, exploring the ways to begin to safely express for ourselves, And that work begins by acknowledging the needs, acknowledging why we're not expressing them, and then beginning to meet them ourselves and then communicate them to others. Yeah. And sometimes a relationship just takes its course and there's no kind of big thing that happens, but maybe you didn't grow together, or maybe you're now becoming more aware of your needs that are not being met that you do need, right? I'm sure you see that a lot. Absolutely. I mean, there's many different reasons why we choose to create distance or, or end relationships. I think in our, in our society, there is a, a big, a widely held belief that tenure of relationship, right? How long I've been in them or the longer I'm in them, right? The harder it feels to get out. Or I feel like it's a badge of honor. Oh, it's already been 20 years, right? That I've been in this relationship. That's that's a good thing, right? That that means that the relationship is, is, is healthy. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. Um, I think a lot of us are continuing in relationships because it's our familiar, though it isn't necessarily allowing us to be authentically who we are. Totally. What about codependency? Can we talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that? I feel like I just know a smidge of what it is. And I'd love to, to know more about um, what it is, why it doesn't serve us, how do we kind of even identify mm -hmm. it and so on and so forth. I'm smiling um, as a definitely a still in recovery codependent <laughs> myself. Um, because again, from my earliest relationships, what I learned was a similar hypervigilance that, that many of us do that you were describing. I learned that in, in a stressed environment um, where I had a mom and an older sister who had very kind of consistent and active health-related issues, health-related concerns, there was a lot of stress in this environment. I learned that to continue to get my needs met, I had to be attuned to these people around me. So what I began to do is I filtered my needs 
through the impact it would have on them. Just like I was describing earlier, right? I might've wanted to share something as a child, you know, when I was very young and I might've been like, Ooh, that might've, that might stress mom out. And mom's, you know, mom has enough stress because something's happening with my sister right now. So, you know, I'm not going to share that. So now what I've done is I identified, I have a need. I want to share this with someone, my mom, who might, I might feel close to in that moment. And I filtered it through what that person might need. Some of us just become over-reliant on other people, right? We never grow out of this idea that others should be meeting all of our needs. Like I described in childhood, of course, that's the case. We can't meet our own needs. However, into adulthood, our goal is to take the baton, right? Is to have learned ourself enough to have been modeled by those around us tools to have been helped along to regulate when things feel too uncomfortable, right? When I'm too stressed out to have someone to help me. And then over time, the goal is for me to begin to acknowledge, identify, and meet my needs. And some of us who come again from certain environments don't ever take that baton over. And we become an adult who, if you're not filtering, what, how do my needs impact someone else? You might be just totally relying on someone else to have your needs met. Maybe even you believe that to be true. I did a, um, we just did a podcast, Jenna and I, on the Self-Healer Soundboard about unrealistic relationship expectations. And one of them is, is that idea that you should meet all of my needs. This is what a relationship is. And again, that comes from that codependent conditioning where there was that person that was always showing up. I was totally reliant and I've never taken it over. And again, there's a lot of environment that that can translate into this codependency. What it looks like in adulthoods is overly relying on other people, allowing other people's moods to affect your own. If your partner comes home stressed before you know it, you're stressed too. You adopt the feelings, the beliefs, and even sometimes the needs of others as your own to the complete detriment of ourself because our needs actually never go away. Even if you're on a spaceship like I was and you don't feel them, it doesn't mean that your body doesn't have needs. It doesn't mean that there aren't emotions that are deep down in there. So what you've come to do in your relationship is meet someone else's needs or have yours met through how you're showing up for someone else. Whoa. So when we're codependent, does that mean that we're not connected to ourselves? We're not connected to ourselves. We might be overriding ourselves. that connection. Like I was describing earlier, we might have the inclination of what I'd like to say or what I'd like to do or how I'd like to see this relationship play out. But I might've played that tape out. I might've expressed that before and it wasn't received well. Um, so then I might choose not to do it this time. Interesting. Guys, do you have anything on codependency while we're on it? I haven't, mine's more like not necessarily codependency. Mine's more like insecurities in relationships. And I feel like that kind of feeds into codependency a little bit. I mean, they all kind of feed yeah. each other, but what about like, how do we go about identifying them and then not acting on them? I mean, I feel like that's something that I do a lot that I have just recently become aware, like, whoa, that's a trigger or that's a this Kelsey, because you're, you, you are insecure. It's not their problem. So how do we go about, you know, that's dealing with that? Yeah. A lot of times, you know, what insecurity originates in is that lack of knowledge, that lack of knowing, not having that consistent caregiver that showed up. And what that translated to me is many things. I'm not worthy to have someone show up. I don't know how to meet my needs on my own. I actually don't feel safe with myself. 
um, is the ultimate byproduct of that. So I become then an insecure person who looks for indication of safety or validation in the world around me. Um, because again, I, I, I can't give that to myself. Um, I, I look to other people um, to feed that, to create that stable base of security. And, and when we understand what our needs are, then of course we have to learn how to, you know, even if we might get reactions from other people, even if we don't know how they're going to experience it, to begin to express it, even while that fear is there. Because those of us who have that insecurity, who don't feel worthy of expressing our needs, that fear doesn't go away. And when I'm hearing reactivity, a lot of us are reactive then. When a need is there and is unmet and we don't anticipate it's going to be met, we might as well be like that crying baby that I was describing earlier because we are. Our nervous system is actually now activated. I don't feel safe. My body isn't safe because it is probably not in that calm, peaceful state of activation. It's probably either totally shut down, like I was describing earlier, or I might be cycling in that fight or flight, the flee kind of mentality. I'm not safe. And this is why I, I urge us all to think about ourselves as a holistic human, because I could say here and give the words and say, oh, yes, if you're insecure, you just have to learn to express your needs and right, do so safely. Your body might actually be sending your mind all of the signals to the contrary. It might be saying to you, because your need has gone unmet for so long, that your body is absolutely not safe. You might actually not even be meeting your body's needs. You might not be sleeping as much as your body needs or giving it the nutrients your body needs. And this is why for so many of us, we haven't been able to think our way to security or think our way to a healthy relationship or think our way to peace or happiness, right? All that positive thinking and affirmation might not work because reactivity lives in our body. And if our body isn't safe, our mind isn't going to be safe either. Holy cow. <laughs> My God. Yeah. It's a lot, like, I think it seems like a lot of it ties to unworthiness, right? So when your needs yeah. are met, you instantly feel like I'm not worthy of it. Like, I just keep thinking of my mom telling me, she, she told me one day, she goes, when I was really young, I was like a baby, I was young, young, I started crying. And my, she goes, your father, Maria, he hit you, you never cry again. And I was like, oh, oh, that. <laughs> doesn't sound good. <laughs> and so, but then at the same time, I feel like I'm just a cry baby. Like all I, if I get like, you know, emotional, I just can't, I can't hold it in. So then I'm like, well, how did the opposite happen as an adult where I feel like all I do is cry, you know, mm -hmm. it's so strange, but all of those like little things that happen Set impact, set mm -hmm. the, the, the kind of stage for everything else. But then you're like, okay, I can't have emotions. And then already as girls growing up, you're taught that you're not supposed to have emotions, yes. right? We're not supposed to yes. be angry. We're not supposed to express our needs because then we're little divas or, you know, the girls are different. The boys are different. They can do whatever they want. Girls, you got to be perfect. You got to have your little bow and your little dress and it's so much and it's so overwhelming. And this all makes me want to find like multiple turtle shells to hide underneath. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to like, sometimes I'm like, I look at the pool. I'm like, can we just go to the bottom and not come up? Because this world is so overwhelming because there are so many of us. We're all 
carrying so much. And then you're supposed to force yourself into this world to model whatever that perfect kind of model is where you're totally effective and you can, you know, hustle and handle a lot and you're like super successful and amazing and perfect and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we're all fucking just, no wonder we're all just riddled with anxiety and just falling apart at the seams and getting sick because we don't know how to really be. We just are acting what we're supposed to be. There's so many influences, right, that come out in all these different spheres. For some of us, it's that very gendered kind of messaging or modeling that we got in childhood where we were, you know, and sometimes it's not even direct. We might not have been the child who was told girls do this or don't do this or boys do this or don't do that or whatever it might be. It might just have been in what we saw or experienced the genders around us doing or not doing, right? That is such an incredibly powerful teacher. For others, it's cultural, right? There's a lot of beliefs culturally that are transmitted through generations. Another bigger group still is like I was saying earlier, all of us are raised by humans. It's generational, right? Some of us, so my parents came from a depression error, right? So of, and of my dad, very heavily Italian background, there was a very big belief in my household that there were only basic needs, keep the child alive. And Custodial. Weren't on the table because they didn't know, they weren't ever taught that there were emotions to be tended to. And quite honestly, they didn't, they couldn't care about them. But also their emotions weren't met. Exactly. So they were focused on survival. So as in the human parent that they become, my mom, my dad say, they weren't tending to their own emotions. So they weren't talking to me about what I should or shouldn't do around my emotions, nor were they showing me. And what happens, I'm happy you brought up that kind of core concept of unworthiness because you are 100% right. Because in childhood, when we were so attuned, and when we sense that our needs aren't consistently getting met and or when something violating happens or abusive happens, the developmental maturity of our brain can only understand that in one way when we're below age seven, only one way. And that way is I played a role. It's my fault. When my needs aren't met in childhood, the only way our, our brain can understand it is I was bad. I was unworthy of having my need met. That belief doesn't go anywhere as we age. We become then the adult who's driven from that idea of unworthiness, probably continuing to not allow our needs to be met. And again, it originated because that's developmentally the only way we could understand the situation. We couldn't understand that our parents come from other parents and generations and they leave our home out to a work and it's stressful out there and they might have their own things going on. So right when mom or dad or whomever came through the door stressed out and angry, It wasn't about me at all. But as my child, when I was in a child developmental stage, I could only understand it, that it was me. And God forbid, I did have the parent who your toys are on the floor. This is why it's happening. Now I have the verbal confirmation that I did do something wrong, continuing to strengthen that belief of unworthiness that yes, we carry into adulthood with the pressures that never go away. We're still told how things should look, how we should be, what's successful, what's an ideal life, what isn't. And, you know, we carry that and then we respond to that. And you're right. We don't know. We don't actually know ourselves. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I had a therapist who said, she goes, you had custodial parents. Custodial. And it sounds like you probably had a similar situation. And we also had that health situation in our house where my dad was almost dying on a daily basis. So we were in fight or flight constantly 
is he alive? Is he dead? Mm -hmm. And so there was no time for our emotional needs, but they never had their emotional needs met. So how would they even know? Exactly. They came from a village with no running water. I mean, they they Mm -hmm. did not have any of this. So every generation does the best that they can with what they have, but it still doesn't change your situation, right? So then you go without your needs being met. Now, most people end up keep meeting somebody you know, their relationships will continue to be people who can't meet their needs, right? Can't meet their needs or can't allow the space, right? Because I think it's more about allowing the space to have needs met. Because remember, we don't fully want to be reliant on someone to meet my needs. We want to have a safe environment where I can show up either meeting my needs myself and it doesn't cause you any distress or you allow me, even if you don't prefer that I be doing it this way, you allow me to do it. It doesn't create a lack of safety, right, in our environment. That is, I think, what we're more going for is the space, the safety, and the ability to self-express even when it is uncomfortable. We're not looking for someone to meet our needs. We're looking for the safe space where we can bring them to the table, which does include sometimes asking for support and then receiving the support or asking for you know a partner to actually go and help you care for a need of your own. It's the space that we're looking for because, again, we have to be careful not to just look for the partner to do it entirely because then we are powerless. We're disempowered and not every, A, it's an impossible, unrealistic expectation that someone be able to show up in service of you every day and day in and day out because they are a human too with a life happening. (laughs) Believe it or not. Kevin sometimes will be like, I'm a human. I'm like, no, honey, you're just my, my blow up toy. (laughs) Whenever I need you, I'm like a broken nail. I need you. Yeah. I think we, a lot of us have that belief, right? That, yeah. that, and, and not realizing that there might be other factors happening in that person's life at that time that involve themselves, their own needs that are actually healthier for them to meet. Because what happens if you are the person who squashes your needs, like a lot of us are, and you show up in service of someone else immediately, you think, oh, I'm being nice. I'm being kind. Maybe you think I'm being loving. I'm tending to my partner. Isn't this what you're supposed to do? What's happening behind the scenes is you're actually accumulating resentment because you're, you're, you're watching yourself, not meet your need, outsource, put someone else ahead of you. And over time, you're probably going to do what I once did, hold that person responsible at some time in the future, maybe even leave the relationship as a result of it, because now you're so resentful because like I was saying, your needs haven't ever gone anywhere yet. You don't actually look at the fact that you overstepped them in service of meeting someone else's, you just hold that other person responsible. I really want to get into how do we do the work? As my husband always says, how do we zap this shit? We've heard, okay, cool. Our, you know, formative years set the stage for, you know, our adult lives. And these are the things that are holding us back. And these are the things that are continuing to perpetuate, you know, different cycles in our lives. How do we zap this? How do we fix it? How do we do the work? As (laughs) your book says. (laughs) The work always begins. I'm going to break it down in kind of two steps. I think we could sit on the first step for a little bit. And I've already said the word. It begins in consciousness. It begins in learning how to be present to what's happening now. What is the case in our environment or or in our relationships? And a lot of people listening might might be thinking, well, that's easy. I know what the case is, right? However, a lot of us aren't actually living. Consciousness lives in a particular part of our brain, actually. 
it lives in if you were to tap your skull, um, your forehead. Um, right behind your forehead is where we call it the prefrontal cortex. It's what makes us humans. It's where consciousness lives. It's the fact that we can view our thoughts or kind of think our thoughts, right? It's this idea that we can make sense of them. We have a higher level of thinking and that is in our kind of behind our forehead. The reality for most of us is we're not living from that space. We're not actually fully present to our current environment. We're probably living from a deeper part, more emotional part in our brain that is the autopilot that a lot of us have probably heard about. And I think the stat now is like, you know, somewhere, and I don't even know how you can actually track this, but upwards of 95, 90% of our day, we're not actually conscious to what's happening. We are highly habitual creatures. This is that phenomenon, right? If I drive to work, I'm maybe rehashing the argument I had with my partner that morning, yet before I know it, I've arrived at work. I haven't really tended to the directions or even driving the car, yet I got there. What got me there? My autopilot. My autopilot that knows how to drive a car that's probably taken that same route day in and day out. That doesn't mean that I was, I might be doing something. That's why I use this example, right? I've driven, I've arrived to work, yet I wasn't actually present because I was in my mind. And anytime I'm in my mind, monkey mind, my thoughts, definitely if it's about a past event or a future one, I'm not here right now. And like I said, so many of us, we live life from that autopilot. We're actually not conscious at all. So when we're talking about creating change of any kind, if I want to create better habits that serve me, that can change my emotional experience. And definitely if I want to create change in my relationships, I need to be conscious to what is here now, which means I need to learn how to observe what I'm doing from the conscious part of my mind, not just doing it. I also need to understand that when I begin to drop in to the thoughts that are running through our minds all day long, for some of us, that might even be news in and of itself. Wait, I'm thinking? Some of us are so merged with our thinking mind. We think we are our thoughts. We actually have no separation to understand them to be right the clouds in the sky or the waves in the ocean, whatever metaphor works for you. We don't know what you're talking about because I'm so in my thinking mind. I actually have, I'm lost in thought all day long. I'm absolutely not conscious. I can't see these habits and patterns at all. So the first step in always of creating change is create consciousness. Because when we create consciousness, what we might see in our thoughts is that they're actually not an accurate representation of what's happening now, right? So to use that example of unworthiness, if I, in childhood, didn't have my needs met consistently, so I, because developmentally, I couldn't understand what was, why my needs weren't being met any other way than I might not, must not be worthy of having them met, I probably have created a belief that I'm not worthy. And now I march forward into life with that belief. And what happens then in my thoughts is those beliefs become filters. I, or any of us as humans, we can't take in the full present moment in any given moment. There's just far too much going on. We live in overwhelming existence. So we have a part of our mind that filters out what's going on. And it decides for us what's relevant to what we need to know right now to, you guessed it, keep ourselves safe and what's not relevant. And one of the main things it uses is our beliefs. And it gets filtered through a part of our brain that's called the reticular activating system. So now this idea that I'm not worthy becomes the filter, the lens that I'm putting over everything Oof. that's happening in my environment. And chances are, because we all love to be right, I'm going to find 
or I'm going to interpret or I'm going to assign meaning to whatever it was that happened. It could be anything really as the meaning that I will likely give it because it's the meaning I've given it since childhood is, oh, but of course this is happening because I'm not worthy of anything else. And I'm sharing this as an example of how our thoughts, our beliefs for so many of us are stuck in our past. And if we're not conscious, are coloring the entire experience of our present and coloring it down to our body, right? Because if I'm feeling unworthy in this moment because I viewed or I'm choosing to view, right? My, my partner not responding to me in a timely manner as indication that I'm not worthy of a response in a timely manner, chances are my nervous system is probably going to activate the same way it did in childhood, right? I might become fight or flight. I might distance or detach. And chances are I'm going to do the same thing I did in childhood to tend to it. I might scream and yell at my partner. How dare you not text me back in time, right? Coming from this now activated fight response in my nervous system, or maybe one of my, one of the favorites in my household, I might ice them. I might withdraw. I might say, oh, you're not texting me back. No problem. I don't need you anyway. You might not get a text back from me, right? So I probably will do the same thing I did if I'm not aware and my body's going to go into that reaction and I'm going to cope with it the same way I always did back to consciousness. If I'm not aware that all of that was happening behind the scenes and I, you can actually become aware of it by beginning to practice how to be conscious. Wow. So one of the things that's popping into my head right now is I'm just feeling the overwhelm of people listening who maybe in the first part heard so much of themselves. It's like, Oh my God, that's me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. And then we live in a time where, you know, we can click, click, click and things are at our door in two seconds. Anything we want is here. Amazon. Thank you. Um, Domino's whatever. Um, but we, we live in a time where we just want that quick fix and we're used to it. And so like, there's a side of me that's like, I wish there was just a place we could just check into for a week where they would just fix all this shit. Can we just go somewhere and just fix it? Because it's holding us back from everything that we want. And it just seems like, like, a mountain. It's like climbing Mount Everest to try. And so I think a lot of us just don't try because we're like, what's the fucking point? And, and I want, I don't want that for us. I want us to know that there are tangible steps we can take, or there's a place we can go to, or, you know, cause one hour a week, isn't going to do it. It's going to take eons and eons. Listen, I've been doing this for five years intensely. Okay. Five years intensely, I'm still having breakthroughs. I'm still having aha moments. Some of them are like aha moments I had three years ago that I forgot I'm rehabbing them now. And, and I've made progress for sure, but I've devoted my life to it. And it's still a lot. I can only imagine what it's like for the everyday person who can barely just get to their recliner at the end of a day and, and try to like watch an hour of television before they go to bed and have to do the cycle all over again. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And a lot of us do ourselves a disservice when we, you know, kind of attempt 
the uh, from top to bottom, you know, life overhaul. You know, we some of us vary in a very well-intentioned way, do have an idea of what's not working, do create an action plan. I mean, we're getting ready as crazy as it is to enter the new year. The new year is a great time where we like to come up with 10 new things we want to do. Um, and again, because what we're going for here is the things that we now begin to do consistently, we're likely not going to be able to maintain doing those 10 things, right? Those of us that go on retreats and have life-changing experiences, it's only a matter of time usually where we come back and the slippage starts. We go right back to those familiar patterns because the resistance was there. It's so unfamiliar, the newness now of this life, doing 10 new things each and every day, overhauling it from top to bottom actually creates a lack of safety in myself. It feels so unfamiliar that the only way I know to grasp back that safety is to return to those habits and patterns that once served me. So, or hear me. the old muscle is stronger than the new muscle yes. you're building. Yes. And it will be, and it's going to be that those patterns are for many of us ingrained since childhood. It's what's been rehearsed practice and now lives in our subconscious. So that pull is so, so strong and, and new choices need that consistent, you know, patterns need to make new choices need to be made consistently to be made into a pattern, to be able to form those neural networks, to become the new habit. So the first practical piece I want to talk about is, and I speak about this concept often is not doing 10 new things, beginning a practice of one small daily promise setting the intention for the foreseeable future to make and keep a very consistent promise, whatever it is for you, what would be the first step on the journey? I'll give you a suggestion in a minute, but begin to make and keep just one small promise each and every day, because what we're looking for is that consistency, that overwhelm is real. The discomfort with the unfamiliar will be there. It'll feel foreign. It'll feel new. It might feel unsafe. I might meet deep feelings that are uncomfortable. And yet I still want to set myself up to succeed in making that. Now, the small daily promise suggestion that I can offer to listeners kind of marrying this concept with consciousness, because in my opinion, that becomes the foundation speaking to everyone overwhelmed out there. If you want one tool to bring with you through life to be able to make sense of the million things that are happening or need to happen, it's that consciousness muscle. And the way we can begin to practice it is setting the small daily promise or the intention to maybe create one, what I call a consciousness check-in somewhere in your day. We can use the help of the technology, our phones that most of us walk around with, maybe set an alarm maybe set an alarm for every day at say 1.30 PM, my alarm will go off and it will be my reminder to check in with my state of consciousness. And the check-in is two steps, simple and easy. When that alarm goes off, and I'm probably surprised because I might not be fully paying attention in that moment. The first thing I want to note is where was my attention? You know, was I lost in thought? Was I rehashing that argument? Was I worrying about the meeting or the, you know, the schedule I have to keep tomorrow? Or was I fully present and immersed in what I was doing now? And if the answer is no, I was somewhere else. I was tending to something else. I was just simply lost in thought. Then we can take the next step and begin to actually activate our, our a different part of our brain where consciousness lives. Like you were talking about that neural pathway. I downshift into autopilot all the time. So now I need to start to fire up my consciousness muscle and the way that I can do that in that moment when that alarm goes off, I can focus just presently on my body. Where am I in time? 
right? I'm sitting in a chair. It happens to be quite comfortable. I can fo- focus on the sensations. How am I feeling right now in my body, right? I feel this table is hard. Maybe I have a little tension in my back. Maybe I have a little sweat, right? How am I being present to what's here, right? That allows us to be conscious. The more we practice that, the more we can be that observer I was talking about earlier of our thoughts. We can notice when I become lost in thought. We might even be able to be a viewer of what those thoughts were and are. And furthermore, how are are those thoughts impacting my body? How is my environment impacting my body? I can now drop down and even be an observer of my physical body and what sensations are present. Is it in a state of safety like we've been talking about? Or is my nervous system activated? You know, is my heart rate up? Before I know it, will I become reactive in the way that I always become reactive doing the same thing that I always do? And when we build that foundation of, of consciousness, we give ourselves the foundation to go back to, because I think a lot of us are looking for the exact roadmap. I do step one, check. And then I evolve to step two, check. And then I go to step three, check. And before I know it, I've come to some hypothetical end. And now I'm a fully evolved, functioning, healthy human. However, because humans are evolving creatures in and of ourselves, we don't actually know what comes next. Our bodies change, they age, hormones shift, hormones change, our passions, our purpose. We are evolving creatures. So the best way we can set ourselves up is not to look to that roadmap because that roadmap probably will be expired at some point. What, what, what works for me in my 20s probably might not work for me in my 60s when my body is actually physiologically different. Maybe when my relationships are different or my environment has changed in any direction. So the path out of overwhelm is when I have that home base to go back to. And consciousness is that home base. Because when we can be purely present to what's actually happening, we can create space where we don't have to be reactive. Our autopilot won't just determine what happens next. We can then show up in that choice that I'm always talking about. And the choices that we might make might evolve over time with as we evolve. So that's why I'm always talking about consciousness as a foundation, because if you know how to be present to yourself, to your environment, if you can see the beliefs that you're filtering the current experience through and choose, does this apply now? Does my partner not responding in a timely manner really mean I'm not worthy? Or might something else be happening here that I can make a new choice not to scream or yell or not to ice that person? And choice happens again when we build that foundation of consciousness, which can happen with that one small daily promise of that consciousness check-in each and every day. Okay. Consciousness check-in. Got it. I'm going to schedule that. Um, You know, I know that there are some other tools and techniques that I want to get to, but before I get to that, I did watch a YouTube video where you talked about the vagus nerve. And what I found really interesting is I've read all about the vagus nerve. I know about it and I'll have you explain it to everyone. Um, And I know that... um, it's, you know, very important and you'll explain why. But what I didn't realize were the things that you were teaching us to do to calm the vagus nerve were all of the things that people teach us to do in general, but never tell us that it's what it's for. 
So people are always teaching you, oh, breath work is so important. Oh, yoga is so important. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Cool. Mm-hmm. Breath work. All right. Yoga. No, I don't, it's not for me. Okay. I'll meditate if I can find some time, whatever. But when you understand all of that kind of together, it was like a big aha when I watched that YouTube video. So rehash that YouTube video for everybody right now, because I think it's really helpful um, because these are also really great tools to heal that past trauma. Yeah. The vagus nerve is, is an incredibly, it plays an incredibly important function in our bodies. It's essentially the main nerve. It connects our brainstem all the way down to all of the other nerves in our body. It's kind of like the highway um, of communication between our brain, all of our major organs, our gut included. And it's actually the, the, we can think about like the, the flip or the switch um, that helps our nervous system shift from activation. I'm stressed and I'm dealing with it to, oh, that threat is over. I'm safe again. I'm back. I'm at peace and I'm in calm. And our nervous systems, again, are present in, in at birth, in child, in utero. We can't control them. We can't regulate them on our own. We similarly need someone outside of us to help us to feel when we're distressed and to help calm our bodies. Like we were sharing earlier when our needs get met, right? We go from stressed to unstressed that develops flexibility or health in our vagus nerve. It allows us to keep dealing with our stress and the stresses in our environment that we'll continue to face and then allowing our body to come back to peace and to calm. A lot of us don't have that resilience, don't have that flexibility in that nerve. Again, because like we were talking about, especially in the first episode, we didn't, we weren't, we weren't taught that we weren't modeled that. And we didn't give our body the experience of going from stress safely and consistently back into peace and calm. So we become, and again, I'm simplifying all of this stuck our vagus nerve doesn't actively switch us from stress to downshift us into peace and calm. That's what emotional resilience is. The ability to tolerate stress and all of the other emotions of life, emotions that cause physiological changes in our body. Emotions live in our body. They usually activate our nervous system in one direction or another, and then allows us to return to safety. And like I said, because of our earliest experiences, because that's not what happened, because we weren't given the tools, we didn't have the caregiver who was regulated enough to help us, you or I using our stories, our caregivers were stuck in fight or flight. They never downshifted themselves. So they couldn't help our infant self Mm -hmm. downshift. So our vagus nerve actually never hit those brakes, never said, okay, your stress is over, come back down into calm, allow the body to regulate. And so to speak to your point, some of the things that we might've naturally happened upon in life, like yoga, right? Like deep breathing, like those of us who are crazy and like cold, like being in the cold, there's many different things that can stimulate our vagus nerve. There's even actually pressure points on the body that can stimulate. There's one in our ear. I did a a activation in, in our ear canal that can stimulate the vagus nerve. And the reason why we want to stimulate it, it'll help us make that shift. It'll help us if we're stuck in fight or flight, allow us to downshift into that parasympathetic, that rest and digest state. And then the more we practice that, the more we give ourselves that emotional resilience, our body included. And I'm saying that because our body needs to be included because our physiology has actually been impacted via our vagus nerve. 
So, yeah. And that's the thing. Like when you hear people say yoga saved my life (laughs) and then you go and do yoga and you're like, I hate this. I can't do this. (laughs) Right. Then you're like, how did it save your life? Is it just like an addiction that you got into that? Like now you love. But when you see that yoga is something that calms the vagus nerve or breath work, or, I mean, I made the list of things here. Um, where did I write it? Singing, gargling, um, breathing, all of those things will calm the vagus nerve. And I love just the idea of this like highway and there's a light switch because to me, like all of that just clicked visually, you know, we're always on, but if we want to shut off, boom, you just do one of these things. Like that clicks for me. I don't know, Kelsey, do you feel like that's different for you too? No, I get it. It makes sense to me. Honestly, the thing that I was thinking, I just got really excited and texted Kevin singing. So, <laughs> no singing. Yeah. Singing's another one. But I do that. And then I do, I've gotten into the habit of doing the cold shower after my hot shower in the morning because I was convinced my vagus nerve was broken, which I don't know if that's even possible, but I do feel like it's helped me. And I agree with you, Marie, in the sense of like, okay, you can check off all those. You don't need to be like maybe fully fully in or dedicated to one, but you can do all these little things that are going to help. Yeah. So the cold shower is something for the vagus nerve. I didn't realize that. Cold. Yeah. Any, any cold exposure, cold plunge, cold, cold showering. You live in cold. (laughs) I lived in Mm -hmm. upstate New York. So in the cold, yeah, it it activates our vagus nerve. And yes, to speak to your point, we want to practice consistently, right? Because there's two things happening. Not only are we giving our body consistent moments to create safety, to go back into that calm, because it does begin in our body. We're doing something on a more psychological level as well. We're empowering ourselves. We're reversing the belief that the world is overwhelming, scary, and I can't do it. I can't tolerate it to another belief, which is actually that, you know what, little by little, right? Not jumping into the deep end. This is where we want to slowly, as we say, widen the window of tolerance, right? Begin to make, to take the cold shower or sing, you know, like I said, one small daily promise of it becomes two check-ins or two cold, whatever it might be. We want to do that consistently because that sends in a signal that we can do it consistently, that we can over time take our body from stress back down to safety and to calm. And then psychologically, we have an empowering experience, an experience that allows us then to walk into the unknown of tomorrow or of a new relationship or of the future that no one else can predict and have that confidence that whatever it is, as distressing, as uncomfortable, as terrible as it might be, I can create safety in my body. And it doesn't, of course, happen overnight like a light switch. It begins, though, in those small daily promises of maybe doing that polyvagal work, of hitting play on that yoga tape or whatever it might be. Yeah, I just think for me, and I don't know if anybody else is going to connect with this, and if you do, share it in the comments, but I do think that you know, you think of a light switch, you, you're using it every day, right? On, yes. off, on, off, on, off. So if I can visualize my body like that and say, oh, I have the power to turn it off. So if I'm in a heightened state, I'm stressed, I have anxiety. Now I've learned to do these things. Sometimes, like you said, you, you the slippage happens. So I knew when the kettle was like running really hot, stop, just five minutes, just stop, do nothing. And then everything it calms down, right? Um, but now having access to, okay, here are a bunch of things I can gargle, I can yoga, I can sing, I can breathe, I can take a cold shower or a cold plunge. I can do any of these things or breathing exercises to calm the vagal nerve, to shut that off. And then I'm good. That just is literally so mind blowing to me 
And it clicks so well that I know I have a chance at least to apply. Yes. Well, here's a suggestion I will offer you and everyone else who this, this kind of thought, this idea, this picture is clicking for, um, begin to practice outside of those moments where you really need it. Oh, right. Don't <laughs> wait for those moments, right. Where your stress is at a 10 mm-hmm. because it's not going to work. One of two things are going to happen, right? You're not going to remember. You're so dropped into autopilot. Your reaction is already, you're already screaming and yelling, right? Before you can even remember that you have this new great tool in your back pocket, right? And chances are your resources are already blown out. Your nervous system is already too activated, right? For that one deep belly breath to actually help yourself. So you want to begin to create that flexibility. Uh, If you can even create calm in that exact moment, you want to begin to create that flexibility in times where it's not as stressful, Mm -hmm. right? In your day-to-day where the stress is more minimal and as you become more conscious of yourself, of your body, of your states of nervous system activation, you can almost begin to witness then your body kind of ranching up from a five of stress to a six of stress. And sometimes for some of us that preemptive work, calling it, deciding not to go to that stressful meeting at this moment, because I'm already at a six of stress. If I walk in that meeting, and I see someone or someone says something that I don't like before I know it, I've lost control. I'm screaming and yelling and I'm shameful after the fact. So my best suggestion here is to practice, practice often. Don't wait for those times you need it and begin to learn your body because we all have those cues and begin to set up and create your set yourself up to succeed by watching as your body begins to amp yourself up or amp itself up and understanding that you do only have limited resources. You're not going to be able to remain conscious and present and, and keep and make this new choice in the moment if you're exhausted. If you've been stressed for three days, right? If your body isn't getting the nutrients it needs in that moment, the best choice you might be able to make for yourself, if you can, of course, might be not to engage with that stressful event that you might have scheduled. It might be to hit stop. It might be to take some space, maybe delay whatever it is that is stressful in your future to a time when your resources are replenished so that when you walk into that moment, you set yourself up to succeed. You remain as conscious as possible. You remember you have this great new tool, whatever it might be, breath work, if that's what it is for you. And then you can begin to use it in those moments where you really need it because those are the moments myself included, there's still moments where I'm crazily reactive. I say and do things that are incredibly shameful to people that I love very deeply. It's not who I am. I let my body get too depleted and I actually lost control and I didn't have that choice. I didn't have that choice until my body actually got its resources back. Mm, That is the key is not letting yourself get depleted Mm -hmm. because that's when you're just not yourself. You're just like all over the place. Um, Sometimes it happens in our minds. Sometimes it's not even the stress of like external things. And I notice this in myself, right? My external world might is more, could be more or less manageable. What for me is kind of the, the tipping point is my internal world in my time away from whatever stressful thing I have to tend to externally. Where are my thoughts and what I noticed for me, and again, I'll marry this all together for those of us in stressful environments in childhood who couldn't, didn't have peace and calm. Chances are in that moment where there isn't the stressful thing to tend to. You create it. 
you create it in your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be sitting on the couch, like I said, throwing the peace signs. No one's around me. I might not have any kind of stress in the given environment or my next appointment might be tomorrow. Yet if I'm sitting on that couch, worrying about that appointment is to, that is tomorrow, analyzing the exchange I had with my partner this morning, I'm now actually not sitting in a, on a peaceful couch, right? I've created stress in my mind. So I like to share that because some of us might not have the things outside that are stressful, but our thoughts then become the point of activation. So really understanding what you're thinking and the impact that that has on your body. And I'll be the first to say, I love thinking stressful thoughts. I I love to think stressful thoughts. I like to go look at stressful things when I know they live on the internet and stress myself out. And if I make those choices, Before I know it, I'm now depleting my own resources. Mm -hmm. So when my partner comes home and I can't remain in my conscious state and I'm screaming and yelling at them, right? It's because I might've not had a stressful day at all. I might've been just lying on my couch, but all my stress lived in my mind. So true. Oh my God. Last night. So funny. I, I went from, okay, we're going to call it a day early and we're going to go to dinner and we're going to have a fun time. We are going to go have a great dinner to... I don't know what happened, but I got involved in so many other little things, little thing here, little thing there. Then we get into bed and I'm like, hmm, yeah, not going to take the the supplements I have to take tonight because they might make me sleepy. And if they make me sleepy, I'm not going to be on guard and I'm afraid something's going to happen tonight. Something is coming. I can feel it. I feel unsafe. I feel like there's going to be a burglary and I felt it. And this is what I felt. And literally I left the, the melatonin and the CBD right on the table. I'm like, okay, if at some point I feel safe, I'll take it, but I don't feel safe. I have a feeling I'm on alert now. And at three in the morning, what do I hear? Sirens. There's never in 16 years been sirens on my street. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's happening. Holy shit. And so there was some burglary at the corner. And the police were chasing, because of course I have all the apps to know what's going on. The police (laughs) were chasing three burglars riding around in their car. And I was like, see, I was right. I fucking knew it. Well, you're bringing some to night times for a lot of us, you know, night times haven't been safe based on either things that have happened or the fact that most of us, you know, even from a young age, spent night times more or less alone in our minds. I know for me, nighttime was where I would replay in my bed alone the litany of concerns. Oh, what is that bang in the night? Is it the robber that I too am expecting? Will my sister, my mom, or, you know, my dad wake up tomorrow, right? The night is where, because we're trying to sleep. So most of us, I mean, now we have cell phones. If we don't have our attention somewhere else, where does it turn? to the spotlight of our mind. And that's again, where we can kind of amplify the worry and the stress. Those of us, of course, who have had bad things happen, violating things happen to us at night, then that have that association. For some of us, our beds, right? The place where we're ought to be the most safe and the most secure have been associated with the most unsafe, most not secure experiences for us. Um, And then you bring up the apps and I giggled at that. Then it's, you know, (laughs) the world around us and the information that we're intaking and how often we're doing it and what is the content of it and how is it making me 
feel. And this isn't an advertisement and, you know, burying your head in the sand, not to know what's happening in the world around you. How much are you knowing? Mm -hmm. How stressful is it? When are you doing it? A lot of us do go to bed with those cell phones and we're not reading pleasant material. We're not giving ourselves a loving affirmation to sleep to. We're probably on a social app or reading the news. So really being intentional and conscious, here's that word again, Mm -hmm. to what it is that we're consuming information wise and how much stressing our body out can be that pivotal shift might be the choice that you make as a listener out there to limit maybe again by one small daily promise limit one aspect of that information you're consuming especially when it's exacerbating your stress yeah for sure what other um practical tools and techniques do you have to help us get out of our body help us kind of do the work and get through this um and then i have one last question for you after that yeah. Let's, let's talk about breath work. Um, we've already mentioned that I think breath work can be, I mean, breathing is something we all do naturally. Um, our breath actually for us can be an indicator, can give us a sign of how safe or unsafe our body is. So by simply, I'm going to give us a two-part practice of breath work here. Um, and the first step is just conscious awareness. How am I breathing? Noticing whether you're like many of us, maybe your breath is always a little fast. It's rapid. You know, when you're stressed out, when you have something stressful happen, you know, when you're upset in some way, usually you can notice in your breath. Some of us are always breathing, though, very quick, very rapidly. I'm pointing at my chest, very shallow up here. You might even see some of us can maybe even look down now and see our chest heaving. When we're breathing like that, just like when our breath kind of escalates or quickens because we're running from the threat at hand, right? That's saying our body, you need to run, run right? And your your breath is quickened, indicating that you're not safe until your breath calms down. However, if you come to notice that my breath is never calm, I'm always breathing, I'm heaving, or I'm breathing really rapidly from my chest, chances are that that body of yours is continuing to send those signals to your mind that your body isn't safe. And then it's not a surprise that when you have a moment to have a thought, the thought you're having is a stressful thought. That's when we get caught in this feedback loop because your mind is scanning your body. It's using that information to understand what's happening. And when it, when it notices an escalated heart rate, the only thing you can understand is, oh, well, it's because you're stressed. So income, all of the reasons why you either could be or are stressed. The more you think those stressful thoughts, if you choose to hook your attention and travel down the pathway of that thought, now you're in that cycle we were talking about earlier, continuing your body stress response because you're having stressful thoughts. So first step, become consciously aware of your breathing. How is it in your body, right? Do you notice? And the way you can do that, putting a hand, if you're sitting, if you're laying right now, one hand on your chest, one hand on your belly. I mean, for some of you, it might be very obvious that you're heaving from your chest or you might not even notice yourself breathing at all. Notice, right? Where's my breath coming from? How quick is it? Can I feel it happening? Right. So the first is that assessment. And those of you are like, wow, I'm breathing really fast. You might even feel your heart rate. If your hands near your heart, like my heart is pounding breath, quickening and heart rate quickening usually go hand in hand. My body is stressed. It's not safe. The breath that we're looking for, if you are kind of in that sympathetic fight or flight, I'm stressed out response is we want to begin to do two things we can do for ourselves. We can teach ourselves how to breathe from our belly. 
When you breathe in and you can actually feel that bottom hand inflating and deflating. And for a lot of us, even that motion will be difficult. For me, when I first began, because much of my body reflected my stress, it began to be tense, to be hunched. Mm -hmm. My shoulders are very kind of, right, curled over, hunched over. That was, I couldn't actually access my belly at all, not from sitting. So I began to practice laying down, whether it's before bed, when you first wake up or just laying on your couch or on your floor. For me, laying my body was the only way that I could actually begin to practice. This is might sound silly to people practice breathing. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. Being intentional, right? Really feeling that deep belly inflate and deflate. And the reason why we're looking for our belly in particular, as opposed to our chest, remember chest is shallow. I'm stressed. Belly is activating that parasympathetic, that vagus nerve. It's flipping that light switch, right? Another way we can begin to do it is by elongating our exhalation, right? Making, taking, making it two times as long to exhale as I take to inhale. So on the natural flow of breathing, right? If I want to breathe into a count of two, one, two, I'd breathe out to a count of four, one, two, three, four. That elongation, that longer exhale is that sends that same signal. It sends a signal to your body that stress is going away. You can calm down. And again, that calming of the body will send those signals to the mind. And then there's vagal breathing, which I believe is a version of what you just did, but you hold your breath at the top, right? Can you explain there's, that one? There's, there's a, there's a many different breath work types. Um, I talk about the belly breath and the elongated breath because the goal is to practice as consistently as possible. And those are two things that you could be doing when you're having a conversation with someone in front yeah. of you and they don't even need to have to know, right? Other breath works. Yes. Where you maybe you breathe in, you hold for however many seconds and you breathe out. There's box breathing where you, right? Breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, right? There's many different ways you can even do an activating breath. If you're that person who has no energy, who feels so flat, who's stuck in that shut down, you can do a Wim Hof method of breath work where you actually want to be breathing from a very activated chest-based way. <laughs> it looks like that, very quick. Um, so there's actually breath work that can regulate your nervous system in whatever direction it is. Like I said, I always shout out the belly breath um, and the elongated breath because a lot of us are in that stressed out body. We can do that anytime, anywhere. And if mm -hmm. our body isn't constantly stressed, it's going to be stressed. The next time we encounter stress or an emotion, our body will activate. So those are very helpful tools Though, Like I said, the more conscious you become, what state is my nervous system stuck in? Then you can begin to experiment with all different types of breathwork practice. I mean, now there's even breathwork practitioners. You can be in a breathwork group, mm -hmm. you can get a breathwork coach. Um, so however it is for you to supplement or support your journey, um, my interest is always in what's the most maintainable? What can you commit to yourself for that small daily promise <laughs> and keep more consistently than not. Yeah. I, um, I'm always helping hosts and, um, you know, podcasters, journalists with breath work because they lose their voice because they're just speaking from here, their neck <laughs> and taking quick, shallow breaths, where if you take it mm -hmm. from your diaphragm, you have a full breath, you can, you know, deliver stronger, you can have a better tone to your voice, all of the good things that you want. And also it protects your vocal cords. But it's so hard when you're first learning how to breathe, like you said, that laying down is the best technique. So right mm -hmm. before you go to bed, if you practice it, you're already laying down. It's a great time to do it. 
Um, but then in the car too, sometimes I would just keep my hand on my stomach as I drove mm-hmm. just to feel, yeah. am I breathing from my diaphragm? So that was yes. always a good place to keep breathing was in the car. Um, if someone doesn't have the finances to seek professional help, um, what can, what advice can you give them, um, to be able to get on this path of, of yeah. healing? One of the reasons why, you know, my initial journey began on social media was because it, it was that equalized access, of course, assuming that everyone has access to a cell phone, which I know isn't always the case, um, though for, for, my, for my mindset was for people who do right here, you have the opportunity of a free, free platform and you have a global audience. And the reality I was really coming to terms with was, you know, outside of the States, which, you know, for whatever your opinion is in terms of its system and its resources, there's other countries in the world that look drastically different and have drastically different levels of access. So for me, um, the free apps that were social media was that level of the playing field. If you had an account, right, you could sign on and you could start to at least expose yourself to some of these, this knowledge. I mean, for some of us, it begins with knowledge. For me, it did. For me, it began with even understanding that I had choice. I was, I came from an environment, from a traditional system of training as well, that once taught us that we didn't have choice because the only thing making choices for us were our genetics. We believe that we were bound by the genes that we were born with or our DNA at birth. Our DNA plays, of course, in, in a role 100%, but so do those these daily choices that you and I have been talking about. Um, we now know that we can have choice by making or changing our environment. So for me, that was groundbreaking piece of information. Oh, wait, I can begin to make new choices. I can change my environment in some way and actually change my symptoms, change my experience of myself or my relationships, whatever it is. Um, for some of us, that's the shift in healing. And that's, that was just a piece of information, right. That maybe set someone on a journey of reading, of exploring, of reading books, of taking in consuming information that allowed them to implement new choices in their life. And for a lot of this information, it is coming now free. There are places that you can access this information. And then of course there's the tools. Um, what tools can we begin to do practically that maybe are free of charge? Are there things like breath work we're talking about? Maybe I don't have the breath work coach, but maybe I can learn how to do breath work, or maybe I can find a free breath work group in my community. And again, a lot of practitioners are beginning to offer free services, are becoming very well aware of the lack of access and are offering these more accessible opportunities to find the tools, to find the community, and to ultimately find the healing. And for me, it begins with that empowerment. And that's not to say, right, that not having finances isn't a stress in and of itself. It absolutely is. I mean, we're we're all living to some extent through the last two years that have been what COVID is, right? A lot of us are having our security, our financial security, our, you know, our income, our, our, our work is being threatened. And that in and of itself might be causing the dysregulation in the nervous system, might making these tools that you and I have been talking about incredibly important for you on your healing journey. I love it. Um, Guys, if you want to enroll in the self-healer circle, you can sign up. There is a wait list, right? 
Yes, enrollment right now for the circle is waitlist only. We had uh, enrollment issues with the amount of people interested in enrolling. So <laughs> if you hop on my website, theholisticpsychologist.com, you will see an enrollment, jump on the waitlist email, I should say link. Um, and then once you're on that waitlist, you'll be actually delivered to your inbox, helpful tools. We'd like to give, you know, healing content in that waitlist while people are waiting because we do know people wait a bit. The uh, circle opens three times a year. And then everyone on that wait list will be given all of the instructions on what enrollment will look like. Essentially, it's really simple. A link comes to your inbox. Um, and everyone who is on that wait list will have an opportunity to enroll when the circle opens on January 1st for the new year. I love it. Um, the website is theholisticpsychologist.com, as she said. Instagram at the.holistic.psychologist. We'll put a link to all of this in the summary. Um, what do you do for fun? I, I think I have fun all the time, to be honest. And, and part of that is an indicator of my journey in and of itself, because there was a time where very stressed out me didn't have fun. Couldn't even have answered this question. Um, so I'm answering in this very global, silly way to start, um, only to kind of acknowledge that the fact that I can even begin to now tell you what it is I do for fun is big for me. Fun enjoyment wasn't part of my survival mode and it isn't part of our survival mode for many of us listening. So this is just my little uh, kind of takeaway message for people who struggle to have fun and maybe can't answer this question like I once couldn't. Chances are, again, your body is locked in survival. Fun is not on the docket yeah. when your nervous system thinks it's surviving. So to the answer to the question is, um, I love nature. I love being present with my loved ones. I love painting. Um, I'm actually getting into my body a little bit more and learning how to move my body in a bit freer of a way, not in a structured yoga session, which was my first entry into my body and barking or debarking from my spaceship into my body. Now I'm starting to experiment with how to just be spontaneously in my body. Body. Um, those are all things that I do for fun. How cool. Even just that was just amazing because I have always found I had a hard time with that. Even though I am a fun person, I can be fun in environments where I have to be. Like if work, if it's a work thing, oh, forget it. I'm there. But to create it on my own, ooh, it's a lot of work. Yeah. I actually was the child too, where, and I understand this now, it used to bother me at the time where I was the person, even through my teenage years, even through my twenties, I was the person who would get the comment, smile a little, doesn't hurt. Right. So I even reflected my lack, I even reflected my lack of fun on my whole physical presentation. And I'm sitting here wondering what the hell these people are talking about. What do you mean? You know, I didn't realize that everything was just so serious and yeah. it was of no fault of mine. My, your body can't have fun when it thinks it's surviving. It needs to do the things it needs to do to survive. And a lot of us are like that, which is why I'm happy that we, this conversation came to this piece because we shame ourselves, yeah. especially in those of us. And I don't have children, so I have no idea. I can't really fully relate to the experience of having a child. A a lot of the times this comes up when we do ex or are around children or have our own children, the playfulness of childhood for a lot of parents is difficult. You can't meet your child in play, in fun. And then we begin to shame ourselves and wonder what's happening, wondering why we are so serious. And again, most of the time, the answer lives in our body. You can't, you can't be anything but serious because your body doesn't think it can. Are we doing a part three? <laughs> oh my God. That's so crazy. That's so intense. 
I understand that so much. I feel like I bucked the system a little because for me, I was always smiling. If my mom, when she was asked um, her first interview, what was Maria like as a little kid? She was always smiling. And I did. I always smile, but I smile through all the shit too. Yeah. yeah. I'm always smiling. Right. But so it, it is reflecting the inside. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it is exhausting. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I look forward to about having kids is getting to have fun with them. But now I'm like, damn, am I going to be able to? Because like even Kelsey, remember you came up to me yesterday. I was on my phone. I was doing something. You're like, oh my God, look at how cute your pants are and whatever. I'm like, hold on. I'm busy. Yeah. And I, and I never really do that, but I was so, I had to get it out because I would have forgotten in that Mm -hmm. moment. And wouldn't you just do that with your kid too? Like, wouldn't you be so serious all the time? Like I, oh my God, that really connects. That's a whole other episode. That is a whole other episode for parents who are probably stuck in those ways too and don't realize and then feel so much shame and so much guilt. That is intense. And then we have those that can access fun, right? In their nervous system, but for all of the other reasons in their mind, aren't making the choice to in that moment. Like you're saying, I'm on my phone and I, you know, I'm so caught up in the work stress that I just can't be here now. That's where fun happens. I have to first be here. I have to be present when my child comes over and and make the choice that I can put my phone down for five or 10 minutes and then go give myself the opportunity to have fun with my child. The only way to fun is to first be present, which brings us back full circle to why it's so important to be conscious, to be able to be present and say, oh, you know what? I do have a choice in this moment. While I might think that this email is the end all be all and if it doesn't get there in the next five minutes that my life is gonna end, I might be able to step back from that initial reaction where I'm shooing my child away and say, wait a minute, that's my old thought. That's an old belief. That's not accurate here. That might That space might allow me the choice to put the phone down, be present to my child, to be available if it's fun or whatever else is to come next. Yeah, wow. Um, I am so grateful that you took so much time with us. Thank you for everything you've shared. Um, thank you for all that you do. Um, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Marie. I'm so honored each and every time you, you give me this opportunity to connect not only with you, especially now hearing how similar while our journeys are very different in terms of what it looked like, where it happened, the players involved, I think at the core, and this is the case for most of us. This is why I share. Yeah, This is why there is so much healing and telling stories of this nature, because you might look drastically different. You might be on the other side of the world yet at the core, there's so much similarity. So any opportunity I have to connect with you is is such so valuable to me to connect with your community. So I too am looking forward to a part three at some time. This podcast and all related content published or distributed by or on behalf of Maria Menunos or mariamenunos.com is for informational purposes only and may include information that is general in nature and that is not specific to you. Any information or opinions expressed or contained herein are not intended to serve as or replace medical advice, nor to diagnose, prescribe, or treat any disease, condition, illness, or injury, and you should consult the healthcare professional of your choice regarding all matters concerning your health, including before beginning any exercise, weight loss, or healthcare program. If you have or suspect you may have a healthcare emergency, please contact a qualified healthcare professional for treatment. Any information or opinions provided by a guest expert or host featured within website or on company's podcast are their own, not those of Maria Menounos or the company. Accordingly, Maria Menounos and the company cannot be responsible for any results or consequences or actions you may take based on information or opinions. This podcast and all related content published or distributed by or on behalf of Maria Menounos or mariamenounos.com is for informational purposes only and may include information that is general in nature and that is not specific to you.
Any information or opinions expressed or contained herein are not intended to serve as or replace medical advice, nor to diagnose, prescribe, or treat any disease, condition, illness, or injury, and you should consult the healthcare professional of your choice regarding all matters concerning your health, including before beginning any exercise, weight loss, or healthcare program. If you have or suspect you may have a healthcare emergency, please contact a qualified healthcare professional for treatment. Any information or opinions provided by a guest expert or host featured within website or on company's podcast are their own, not those of Maria Menounos or the company. Accordingly, Maria Menounos and the company cannot be responsible for any results or consequences or actions you may take based on information or opinions. Hey, Hill Squad, we have been on quite the journey together, and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it, and we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heal Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heal events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heal Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much and we love doing this thing called life with you.